At the end of last week's session, we saw that the Lord used a number of threats for those that would disobey to the instructions in his epistle to the Bishop of Thyatira. And now he also announces the reward and the praise to all those who will prove to be victorious and to all those that overcome. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. He shall rule them with a rod of iron. They shall be dashed to pieces like, like the potter's vessels, as I also have received from my father. And I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Who is he who overcomes? The one who will stay firm in his faith and will not be influenced by the falsehood of the deep things of Satan. And he who will adhere to the commandments of the gospel and all these until the end of his life. And what is the crown? the authority to rule over the nations, and the morning star. And first of all, about the authority over the nations, it is the decisive spiritual triumph of Christ over the nations. And this triumph of Christ becomes the triumph of all the faithful. Secondly, about the morning star, this has to do with the participation of the faithful in the glory of Christ, the faithful will be glorified along with Christ. Christ in this book, in the 22nd chapter, verse 16, calls himself the bright and morning star. Consequently, when the scripture says that the Lord will give to the victor the morning star, and since Christ himself is the morning star, this means that Christ will give him himself, meaning his glory and the theoria, the vision of his face in his eternal kingdom. And here, my friends, the most important epistle of the Lord to the Bishop of Thyatira comes to a close with a known closing line. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Again, the Lord reminds us constantly of the necessity, the necessity of the spiritual readiness of the spiritual ears in order to hear and perceive his divine will. This is a great necessity at all times, and based on this necessity, we have our spiritual ears to hear the word of God, and this is something that our entire salvation is dependent upon. And now, by the grace of God, we come to the fifth epistle to the Bishop of Sardis, And we read in the third chapter. And to the angel of the church in Sardis write, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. I know your works, that you have a name that you are alive, but you are dead. Be watchful and strengthen the things which remain that are ready to die. For I have not found your works perfect before God. Remember, therefore, how you have received and heard. Hold fast and repent. Therefore, if you will not watch, I will come upon you as a thief, and you will not know what hour I will come upon you. You have a few names, even in Sardis, who have not defiled their garments, and they shall walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes shall be clothed in white garments, and I will not blot out his name from the book of life, but I will confess his name before my Father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Sardis, my friends, was the old capital of the kingdom of Lydia, and it was positioned south of Theatira. During the years of the Revelation, the city of Sardis was in a decline, and the life of the city was pretty much on the blink. This was also the state of the spiritual life of the bishop of this city, who was rather inexistent. He was a spiritual vegetable, so to speak. He gave the impression that he existed, but he was dead, spiritually dead. 
And now the Lord says, These things says he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. Here we have the introductory inscription of the epistle, which is taken from the introduction of the book. And it happens to be an extremely important description in its content. In the first chapter of the book of the Revelation, verse 4, where John sends a greeting to the seven churches from God, we read, John to the seven churches which are in Asia, grace to you and peace from God who is and who was and who is coming, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne and from Jesus Christ. Here we clearly have the Holy Triune God, the grace from God the Father, God the Son, who became men, and from the Holy Spirit. But we also see quite clearly here that the Holy Spirit is called the Seven Spirits, because the name Seven Spirits wants to declare the Holy Spirit in its fullness, of which Holy Spirit the sender is Jesus Christ himself, as, this, as the Gospel of John records. And the Lord says, When the paraclete comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father. So when we read in the inscription of the epistle, these things says he who, was, who has the seven spirits. In reality, the verse is saying that Jesus himself sends the Holy Spirit in its fullness. So the Holy Spirit, with all its gifts and graces, will be sent out if the Lord Jesus Christ sends it. If he doesn't send it, it will not be sent. And from this we see that Jesus sends the Holy Spirit, but the epistle writer also records that the same Jesus Christ also holds the seven stars in his hands. But it was already pointed out in the beginning of the book, during the introduction, that Jesus Christ is the one who holds in his hands the seven churches of Asia Minor. The number seven symbolizes and represents the entire church. So, my friends, Jesus Christ holds the Holy Spirit and the churches. The mind of the entire verse is this, that Jesus Christ sends his Holy Spirit to the seven churches of Asia Minor. In other words, the entire church. But there's something here that we should find impressive, that the Lord names this identity of his attribute, that he holds the Holy Spirit. He has the Holy Spirit, which he sends, and he specifically includes this inscriptional element in this epistle because it relates to the content of the epistle. A few lines later, he will declare the bishop spiritually dead. And in essence, he's saying to him, I am the one who gives the Holy Spirit. Why then are you staying spiritually dead? Why aren't you benefiting from the presence of the Holy Spirit so you and your church can exercise a spiritual life. This is what the inscription of the epistle is insinuating. Essentially, what we have here is an indirect reproval from the beginning, and this reproval will become much more direct in the content of this epistle. The main theme of the epistle, I know your works, that you have a name that you live, but you're dead. You have a name that you live spiritually, but in reality, you are dead. My friends, what a terrifying statement. This verse should terrify all of us. Each one of us must take a close look at himself. Many times, many of us are guilty of a certain surface piety. And please pay attention because sometimes those who nod their heads may be more guilty of the surface piety. I'm saying this because I have noticed that many, many times uh, people nod their heads like they want to say, not me, but my neighbor or the person next to me. But woe and double woe, not me, but my neighbor. Now you may say, how about if someone has a certain self-knowledge and while nodding, he also includes himself? Yeah, maybe. 
But it seems to me, my friend, that when someone is told about one of his weaknesses, he usually stays silent and he does not nod his head. He's shot. If I suddenly come in here and call you a thief in front of other people, would you be nodding your head? If you are not, you will defend yourself. If you are, your eyes will become wide open. You will be surprised. How do I know this, that you're a thief and I'm exposing you in front of all these people? You will not be nodding your head. So many of us are prone and guilty of a certain external and surface piety, especially when we're not committing heavy sins. Pay attention to this. We are encouraged by the fact that we may not be committing heavy sins and we take on a form of godliness and a relative modesty, thus giving the impression to those around us that we live a spiritual life. This condition, according to St. Paul, is a sign of the last days. He writes in his second letter to Timothy, chapter 3, verse 1. But know this, that in the last days, perilous time will come. For people will be lovers of themselves, lovers of money, boasters, proud, blasphemers, disobedient to parents, unthankful, unholy, unloving, unforgiving, slanderers, without self-control, brutal, despisers of good, traitors, headstrong, haughty, lovers of pleasure, rather than lovers of God having a form of godliness, but denying its power. And from such people, turn away. Having a form of godliness, but denying its power thereof. They will take the shape, the form. They will pretend externally. The outward form will be godly. They will make their sign of the cross. They will dress modestly. They will attend church. But the power of godliness, they will have denied. And I repeat again, Apostle Paul includes this as one of the signs of the last days. In essence, the religious people, the pious people, those that are considered pious, they will simply appear to be so. They will be surface or label Christians at the most. They will not have the power of true faith or godliness. And if we take into account that the Greek word ephsebia, or godliness, was used in the apostolic times to include the entire mystery of Christianity, then the mystery of godliness or piety is Christianity. But when a person lives a pious life, he has the Spirit of God, and he has power. He has much spiritual power. But when a person does not live the true gospel, but he limits his Christianity to some external forms, he goes through the emotions, he's a surface Christian, and in his actions, he has denied the power of the Holy Spirit. And when a man denies the power of the Holy Spirit, he's dead under the surface. He's internally dead. Don't let this surprise you. He is dead. Also in our times, many faithful, many theologians, many of those who theologize have turned theology, this true and fruitful knowledge of God, which must reach the last cell of our body, just like the food that we digest turns into blood, and it reaches the last cell of the body. This theology has been reduced to discussions and dialogues but to get pleasure out of discussions and dialogues and to be content with these dialogues. It's just like chewing gum. There's no benefit. Theology, the knowledge of God, must reach the last corner of my being. He must feed me. He must give me drinks, satisfy my metaphysical thirst. This is the purpose of theology to satisfy my thirst and my spiritual hunger, to make me godlike, a Christ-like being. This is the purpose of theology. But we have limited the knowledge of God to retreats, class discussions, and dialogues. We have become, as St. Paul says, conversationalists of this age in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. So theology has been reduced 
to conversations and discussions, and it is not faith and life. We also notice that a great number of beautiful churches are being built today, and every possible detail is taken care of in the area of decoration. However, the living temples of God are being ignored. Where are the Christians? Here in Greece, you will see the parish priest to build a new temple, a new church with a wood-carved temple, beautiful ornate wood-carved seats, beautiful icons, Byzantine style, the best Byzantine music, everything just beautiful. And there's nothing wrong with all this. Please understand, there's nothing, absolutely nothing wrong with all this. However, when this becomes the main preoccupation of the shepherd, while the living temples of God are falling apart, they're abandoned to fill up with cobwebs, these living temples are the faithful who are dying spiritually because the shepherds are not shepherding, then we can speak of, of a spiritual death. We also install great crystal or brass chandeliers in our churches with bright and multiple lights to light up, light up the space of our churches. We install flickering lights with light dimmers to add a certain mystical atmosphere to our services. But my friends, the light of our Christians has gone out. The Lord says, you are the light of the world. But are there Christians today lights in this world? St. John the Christism says, one Christian, only one Christian, full of fire, full of zeal, can revive an entire city. Does this take place today? We are in a state of paralysis, I'm afraid. It has been said, and rightly so, that long ago, the holy chalices were wooden, but the Christians were golden. Today, the holy chalices are golden, but our Christians are wooden. We also notice in a special holiday, such as holiday of thanksgiving to God, just like uh, a few days ago, we had the national holiday our of our freedom, let's say, and a service of doxology in every cathedral of every city in every metropolis. And we see all the state officials gather, the higher echelon of the government, the political leaders, and I'm sorry to say it, but this high presence is characterized by two words, no substance, no substance at all. So as we can see, the Lord would be just to repeat at every season to all of us that we have a name that we are alive, but inside of us we are dead. Outside, someone sees the shine, the luster of piety, but inside, someone can smell death. In addition, there's also another special case of surface piety, and a progressive surface piety, I might add. But inside, however, it smells of body decomposition. I fished this out from a publication of Sotir, or Savior. This was also published in a daily news in the eighth day of March of this year. This article was published by the Bishop of Silivria, Emilianos. He's one of our own bishops of the climate of Constantinople. The title of this article was, and please pay attention to this, The Christian New Theology changes into sociology. This is the title of the article, and the writer of this article explains, many Christian movements in the last years in Latin America and Europe are based on this premise. The kingdom of God is becoming a reality in history here on earth. Christ came to liberate those bound by poverty, underdevelopment, and racial discrimination. In this way, the liberation of men takes place, not necessarily from the personal sin, but from the social pollution of political systems, which took root from the social sin, the collective sin of the masses. Therefore, the position of the genuine Christian is to be found in the area of socialism. All of you who have some understanding, please understand this. I was pleased to see that the magazine Sotir, or Savior, wrote a response critiquing this article, and the critique was quite good. The theologians of the Savior magazine characterized this article heretical with no qualms whatsoever. 
they clearly express that the writer of this article is in the area of heresy. And now I will expand on this as well. My friends, pay attention. What do we have here? is a change of the Christian theology into sociology. Sociology baptized into a new theology. And this new theology was expressed in this heretical article, places the realization of the kingdom of God within our history here on earth. And that this nothing else but the liberation of men, not from sin, but from poverty, from slavery, from racial discrimination, and in general, from all the social systems which are used in various governments and cause people misery and unhappiness. This is the neo-Christian message. This is the new theology. But this is horrible because if we attempt to make a Christianity to cover and heal the social evils of poverty, racial discrimination, etc., and we are not at all concerned about the subject of sin, and we transfer the kingdom of God here on earth, totally ignoring heaven, then we have secularization in its fullness, a Christianity of this age. Then please tell me, what is truth? If they're claiming that this is the truth, and this is the true purpose of Christianity, the truth, my friends, is repentance, repentance for sin and the return to God. It is not the primary purpose of the church to run and cover the social evils. This is its secondary purpose. The main purpose of the church, the main work of the church, is to heal people from sin and to prepare the people for the kingdom of God. Because here we do not have a permanent city. We do not have a city that will stay forever. We do not have a permanent country. I believe death demonstrates this quite well. Christianity came to render us imperishable. It came to immortalize us. And these things do not exist here on earth. Our time on earth is simply to make the necessary preparations for our trip. We are on our way out of here, my friends. This is not our country. We will not settle here for good. I believe I told you this in the past. When people talk about red paradise, those of the Communist Party, and green paradise, those of the Socialist Party, this is heresy, heresy of the social dimension. Because paradise is not to take place on this earth. Christ was overt on this when he said the kingdom of God is within you. Within you explains what the Lord said, that the kingdom of God does not come with observation, with parades and drum rolls, announcements, advertisements, and the fanfare. Each person finds his way. The kingdom of God is not a social system or a certain political party. The kingdom of God is man's rebirth, his renewal, man's rebirth in Christ Jesus. This is the kingdom of God. Each person must find his way, takes his road to Damascus. This is the essence of Christianity. Now, if the Christians who happen to see the injustice around them, if they would want to help their fellow human beings in every possible way to keep them from being hungry, to help the poor, to help eliminate injustice, and so on, all these things, my friends, are consequential of the work of salvation. But this is not the main purpose of Christianity. Christ did not come to institute justice on earth in a sense that the various social systems want to have this justice. Some young men approached Christ asking him to become a referee or an executor of his father's estate. He said to him, help me to divide my father's property between my brother and I, and the Lord said, My young man, who made me a judge or an arbiter? And instead of attempting to offer some suggestion to do something to reinforce social justice, even for example's sake, so we could have some measure to go by and to be able to exercise this justice here on earth according to the paradigms of the social systems, what did the Lord do? He turned to the young man and said, Watch and guard yourselves from every form of greed. Now, what social system could suggest or limit its citizens, its party members, or to tell them not to be greedy and selfish? Which one? I'm asking you. However, when Christianity promotes poverty, voluntary poverty, now what social system could speak about voluntary poverty? How many votes would a politician get if he would happen to speak about poverty as a blessing? 
that people would throw this person far and beyond their memories in an instant. Imagine a presidential hopeful starting out his campaign like this. Dear friends, I would like to show you the new way. I want to assist you in your happiness. I want to make you poor. Now, would a person like this ever make it out of his city hall to become a senator or a president? Never. But Christ taught exactly this. Blessed are the poor because theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in the checkbook and not the poor in mind. So let's not talk about a Christianity or a kingdom of this world. It is a great distortion. Christianity is salvation of the soul. I believe we must redefine or refresh our memories about the subject and true meaning of salvation. What do we mean when we speak about salvation? What is the orthodox meaning of salvation? Salvation, according to the orthodox interpretation of the word of God, is the salvation of the entire man, including the victory over death and sin, the sin of the soul and the death of the body, with the resurrection of the dead. This is the meaning of salvation. In this context, Christ is called the Savior. He resurrected from the dead to save us. Otherwise, when we distort the true meaning of Christianity and we teach other new theologies to our Christians, then we will surely have a form of godliness, but we will have denied the power of Christianity or godliness. Needless to say, the Spirit of God does not visit these states and when we find ourselves in these surface states, we have inner spiritual death. Become spiritual awake. Wake up. I know your works. You have a name that you live, but you are dead. Become alert. Get a hold of yourself. You need to wake up. You need to look into your heart and your mind. Take spiritual inventory. And this self-evaluation is desperately needed in our days, more so in our days than ever before. We need to reevaluate our spiritual journey based on the things that I was saying earlier. There's no doubt that we need to reevaluate our walk, and we certainly do not need to reevaluate in order to fall into modern theories, but we need to return to the true paths of the gospel. The title today, I'm an Orthodox Christian, we must say that it is used very loosely. It is not a given, but something to be desired. And instead of loosely stating, I'm an Orthodox Christian, we should really use this statement with a question mark. Am I an Orthodox Christian? It is not something automatic just because we may have been given an Orthodox baptism. For example, we must ask, ask ourselves, is Greece today inhabited by Orthodox Christians? If that's the case, then glory be to God. And this is how we will stop being dead when the presence of the Holy Spirit rekindles our hearts and our entire country. But I'm very much afraid. How do I fear the verse, those that God plans to destroy renders moronic? How much do I fear that today we have become moronic? We suffer from a state of foolishness. And this includes all of us, clergy and lady, all of us, every parent, every citizen, down to the last one. We suffer from this state of foolishness. The climate of our times, the way we live, the way we think, unfortunately, all these things have changed. And I'm not sure. I don't know if the Spirit of God dwells over our country or even in our hearts. My friends, do you know that the average Greek citizen today, the one who understands when he reads the newspaper, the average Greek has undergone a great change in his thinking when it comes to the subject of faith. There has been such a great effort of brainwashing and this for decades, not to mention that this seems to go back even before the 400-year Turkish occupation. The Western propaganda of Roman Catholicism and Protestantism were very active even before the Turkish occupation. And this was true not only in the Greek mainland, but in the Orthodox churches of Asia Minor and Holy Land as well. Everywhere, the Orthodox had to deal with Western propaganda, even in Bulgaria and Serbia. They were actively seeking to convert the Orthodox. Again, this Western friendliness started way back, even from the years of Byzantium. If you read some church history, you will see this very clearly. 
So here we are. After a long, century-long planning and pressure, we now come to the sad point where the average Greek has developed a different mindset. The average Greek citizen today does not have an orthodox mindset. I must tell you that this is most unfortunate, truly dreadful, and this may be irreversible for some and even many years. So let's not think that some outsiders or foreigners will come to tamper with our faith. Our, our faith has already been attacked. It has been under attack. This will become obvious if a certain movement attempts to impose changes in our tradition, let's say. You will see that the lay people will not even complain. And this is tragic. There were times where the lay people would rebel to defend matters of faith. Now the people in general will not speak out. And this because their mindset has changed, but also because they are indifferent. There were times where the matters of faith were the life of the people, the life of the faithful. Today, this is not the life of the faithful. Their life is their successful business. Their quest for a greater income to ensure a better and more comfortable lifestyle. The endless preoccupation. This is what counts today. Today, the average Greek Orthodox has lost his interest to defend his faith. He does not care about his faith or as he did years ago. The end result is spiritual death, spiritual paralysis. But woe to us because we will become enslaved once again, enslaved spiritually. We will lose this great treasure of orthodoxy. We will certainly lose it. I don't know who will manage to hold on to it, but it already has been lost. What more can we lose? It's already lost for the most part. But let's not despair, at least for all of you who are here listening. I'm asking you, I'm begging you, Let's be careful to maintain our orthodox mindset, orthodox Christian mindset, to be spiritual people and not to simply have a form of godliness, but to strive and have true spiritual life and strengthen the rest that would otherwise die, the Lord says to the bishop. Strengthen the rest of the members who are still healthy, if you don't take care of them, they will die. This verse shows that in the church of Sardis, there was a number of faithful who did not succumb to those influences which paralyzed the soul. Let's pay attention. What are these causes that paralyze true piety? What are the causes which destroy godliness in the soul of the Orthodox Christian? There are many. Very many indeed. I will only mention a few, the more obvious ones. You know these things as well. You see them. Uh, initially, all the filthy magazines, and now I must include all pornographic material inside or outside of the Internet. The movie industry, which has surpassed every boundary of shame or respect. The theater, which tries to keep up with the movie industry. Television which tries to compete with the first two. We must also include the wave of fashion in all its expressions and forms, the secular worldly lifestyle, and many other things. In all of these things, they are very obvious and basic. But I would also like to mention one that is not so obvious, and we may not suspect this was a cause in drying up the soul, the sermon which lacks orthodoxy. When Sunday after Sunday, for years after years, the sermon at our churches have no orthodox foundation, no orthodox air, no orthodox breath, but they start off with the main article of the newspaper. When the sermons concentrate on contemporary issues so they can relate to the problems of today's tired and exhausted men, so we don't want to get involved with a serious sermon, so our sermons are designed to give rest to the overtired men. And these sermons often help to put people to sleep. This is a serious problem. 
And the pulpit bears great responsibility in this spiritual paralysis. An orthodox sermon upholds people. It illumines. It strengthens. It offers elements and ways to gain spiritual health. I will give you a great historical example for you to see the meaning of orthodox presence. As you know, the seven islands of western Greece, or Eptanisa, were not enslaved by the Turks. However, they were indirectly and constantly under the eye of Italy. Consequently, they were under heavy pressure from the Roman Catholics and the Western spirit and mentality. The question is, how did these seven islands manage to remain orthodox all these centuries? How did they manage this type of thing? This is the question. There was an invisible wall, an invisible fortress, but alive and mighty. This wall stretched from Corfu to Zakynthos, from north to south, a formidable wall of an alive Orthodox presence. It was St. Spiridon, St. Gerasimus, and St. Dionysius. Can you imagine this? Can you believe that this network, this chain of saints, sustained the seven islands and western northern Greece? It served to crush the spiritual blows of dead Europe. Correct the diseased, heretical, and Aryan Europe. Definitely, my fellow Orthodox, are you beginning to understand the value of the presence of one saint, even with a dead body? The saint is alive. The Orthodox saint always lives. However, today, we have alive bodies, alive people, but they're dead. This is why I told you that an alive presence of an Orthodox sermon could revive our Christians, could form an alive fortress to keep our people from the slavery of the corrupt West. But as we see here, the admonition of the Lord is for the bishop to strengthen those who were not infected, but they were also on their way to spiritual death if the necessary measures were not taken to protect them. Again, I must call your attention to this point. Here we have the great dilemma. And I would like to ask once again for your undivided attention. We have the great problem of immunizing our faithful from a world of terrible corruption, cataclysmic ethical destruction that wants to leave nothing standing. This is a most vital problem. How can we protect the members of the church, those that are still healthy, to keep them from the pollution and from this pollution and to have them maintain their orthodox phronema. It is worth noticing that taking protective measures is much more important than administering cure. When the Lord says to the bishop, strengthen the rest of the members of the church, he wants to say, protect those that did not fall. Once they fall, once they die, it is very difficult to revive them. It is like, like us saying that in our city, we cannot allow the polluting work of the Jehovah Witnesses to take root. We should not exert our efforts to cure the fallen victims, but we should exert our energy to immunize them, to protect our Orthodox before they fall into their trap. We will help our people to understand Orthodoxy, to know the treasure of our faith, and then they will be in a position to reject every polluted doctrine and heresy. This is much more effective than to go heal someone who has been infected by heresy. It is very difficult to bring someone back after they change, and the success rate is rather unpromising. However, the results are much greater when we exercise a discipline of prevention. An ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, even in spiritual matters. And now we need to address this question. How can the healthy members of the church safeguard themselves in today's day and age? This is a great subject. There are three methods, coexistence, existence, and isolation. First, to coexistence, we refer to the state where the Christian lives or coexists in the world with the people of the world, exactly how most Christians live today. They live exactly like the world lives. 
It has to do with the open arms of the church, and this is quite obvious to us today. The church wanting to accept and institute every secular introduction, thus becoming secularized. We open the doors of the church wide open, and we say, come on in, ladies and gentlemen. What can we do to please you? What would you like? Would you like guitars in our worship service? Let's give it a try. No problem. We will have guitars. Or would you like violins and clarinets at your daughter's wedding? Why not? Or let's say your non-Orthodox wife-to-be, uh, she wants to remove the apostolic reading verse, their wife must fear their husband, otherwise she cannot go ahead with a wedding ceremony. Well, let's think about it. Let's talk about it. We will bend over backwards to have you as members. So we are eager to do whatever it takes. We will even close our eyes in known cases of fornication, couples living together. We give amnesty to these things so we can appear to be people of understanding, people of love. We accept homosexuality or at least remain silent so we can appear to be sympathetic and people of understanding. This way we will remain silent about abortion and automatic divorces and many other things. My friends, I'm not exaggerating. These things happen today. These things go on daily. If you only knew how the clergy thinks today, if you only knew how the clerical minds think today, if you knew how some of our shepherds think today, I'm not talking about the European shepherds of the world of Protestantism and Roman Catholicism. Oh, there we have absolute chaos. There the abyss is almost enough to darken the sun. I'm speaking about us. If you knew how some of our Orthodox shepherds think today, if we could throw away some taboos, as we say, if you knew what revelations we could present to the world, and the things that we would be saying to the world. So all this drama is called coexistence, or the open-mindedness of the church to assist and understand today's fatigue and problematic men. And the justification? The church must not be labeled medieval and antisocial. We must keep up with the footsteps of contemporary men, just like a mother lets her child walk to the child care center, but she follows a few steps behind to keep an eye on things. In this way, the church keeps following the movements of the contemporary men. Or if you will, if someone was evil, and this is the tactic of the devil, would do this. You may know this about the men who wanted to lead the pigs to the butcher shop. Pigs are not the easiest animals to work with, so he used this method. He had a big bag with acorns, and he would line the path to the butcher shop with them. As he would walk towards his destination, he would throw a few acorns, which kept the pigs running after him all the way to the sausage factory. This is how the devil works. The world today is running, and the church is almost out of breath trying to catch up and save the world. At the same time, and here we see how cunning the devil is, the running distances the church from its main purpose and its main mission to truly save the people. Because the church, in its attempt to run after the problems of contemporary men, falls into countless compromises. And these compromises, in the final analysis, do not save. They cannot save being the product of a desperate, secularized church. This is the work of the devil. But let's listen to how St. Paul expresses this so we can back this with Scripture. 2 Corinthians 6.14 Do not become unequally yoked with unbelievers. The yoke is unbearable. It doesn't work. For what fellowship or participation can take place between righteousness and lawlessness or between virtue and sin? Or what communion can light have with darkness? Or what agreement can take place between Christ and Belial? Or what partnership can be between a believer and an unbeliever? Please listen carefully as St. Paul analyzes this, this unequally yoked or hetero-yoked, heterozygundes. Hetero is the same prefix using the word heterodox. So St. Paul analyzes this heterozygundes, or unequally yoked, into four points. First, participation. Second, communion. 
third, agreement, and fourth, partnership. All these four elements can be named with one word, coexistence. And I repeat, participation, communion, agreement, and partnership. With one word, coexistence. And the apostle says, how is it possible to have such a coexistence with the unbeliever, the morally corrupt, the devil? Can there be such a coexistence? No, this state is unacceptable for those that call themselves Christians. It does not work. This is not an alternative for those who want to maintain their spiritual health. I previously said, and you should have corrected me on this, I said that today there are three methods to preserve the healthy members. My friends, you should have corrected me because this method of coexistence does not work in preserving the healthy members of the church. It leads them to the spiritual cemetery. My friends, I purposely brought this method up because it is erroneously believed to be a method of church preservation. We feel that we have to do this to keep up, to keep our faithful coming to church, to keep them from running to other churches and so on. This experiment has failed. It has failed with our youth and our faithful in general. This method does not work because it simply lacks the aroma of Christ and the Holy Spirit. It is a humanistic method. Second, and now we come to the second method, it is the simple existence of the believer in the world without taking part in the ethics of the world. On the contrary, he attempts to influence his environment as much as he can so that people around him can accept the gospel. St. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 5, 9, 10, Do not associate with sexually immoral people, and I don't necessarily mean the immoral people of this world, or the covetous, or extortioners, or the idolaters, because in that case, you might as well take off to the mountains. But if someone named a brother, if someone calls himself a Christian, and happens to be sexually immoral, then do not even eat with such a person. However, today, we can say that most people around us claim to be Christians. So what do we do in this case? Please listen. The mind of the verse is this. You, the Christian, can move about in the world. Now, if your work supervisor is immoral, your butcher is an atheist, your banker happens to be a mason, the fourth, the fifth is something else, whatever. But all these people have betrayed, they have expelled and stepped their Christian identity. Now what are you going to do? Society is very corrupt. What should we do? Listen, my friends, I will go into the supermarket and I will shop. I will visit my butcher. I will do my necessary business. I will buy, sell, trade with people of my community but I will have nothing to do with the secular ethics because I know to adhere to my own Orthodox Christian ethics. I will say good morning, hello to everyone, to the entire world. I will be polite. I will say good morning, how are you? Especially as St. Paul says, before someone becomes ordained, it is necessary to have the opinion of those outside. He means the idolaters. The non-Christians, even the immoral. This will show that the one considered for the priesthood is a sound and important person in order to be a priest or a bishop. And how is the one outside of the church going to say kind things about me? I will say, good morning, how are you? How's your family? Take care, and so on. Now, I will have no other dealings with them, no visits, no get-togethers, no picnics, no vacations, nothing at all. This is what we mean by existing in the world. I utilize the world, but I separate myself from the ethics of the world. To succeed in this, however, we need to acquire the necessary discipline and conscience so we can protect ourselves. You as adults must in turn help your children. You will tell them, my child, you'll go to school. We cannot keep the children out of school in reality. Uh, it wouldn't be such a bad idea, but schools today, unfortunately, leave a lot to be desired. But 
we have to send our kids to school. There may be many negative elements in the school system, so we will teach and condition our children to avoid the company of certain or all classmates if necessary, no give and take with certain people. The purpose is to receive your education and to come back home. I know this is very difficult, but this is what we have to do. Now you may say, this is quite unrealistic. The children are so easily influenced. I believe that children who receive much spiritual help from both parents, the children who are brought up with true spirituality will fight off some of these negative school elements. And the third and final method of maintaining spiritual health is that of isolation, which is extremely necessary in many situations, especially in our times. Isolation or total separation. We must point out that God himself advises this isolation. We find these verses in Isaiah 52, verse 11, in Jeremiah, and in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 17. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. Separate yourselves, isolate yourselves, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will receive you. What this means is that there are certain times where we need to isolate ourselves. We need to stay away. We will need to isolate our children from certain events and from certain places. We will not have television and the movies control our lives and our children's lives. We will do away with some of these things if we want our salvation and if we want our children to become good citizens. Please try to understand this. I come to this practical conclusion from today's reality. It is obvious that the healthy members of the church today must be protected by the last two methods of existence and isolation. The combination of these last two methods of existence and isolation and not coexistence will keep the church members from spiritual death. It is possible that we'll be accused of narrow-minded, fanatics, backward, old-fashioned, antisocial. My friends, let's not be concerned. Let's not be concerned about what people may say. As it is written, the just shall live by faith. 